Yeah. Who wants to introduce what we were just talking you sh- about? You should, Julian. We should. <laughs> well, we, we can introduce our, ourselves. Do we do that anymore? No. No, we're all famous, so everybody. Knows <laughs> <us>. <laughs> we're all internet famous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, the, on the little corner of the little corner of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we were just talking about um, confessionalism and how do you define the word Christian and what does the word Christian mean? Um, and I was just saying, one one saying of Jesus I've started to think about recently is the whole thing about don't judge, unless you be judged. And I think part of what he's getting at there is, um, it's you can't really draw these hard and fast lines and say you're in, you're out. You can't really um, say you know the spirit is moving. You can't. I think it's about um, you can't the spirit moves through people in strange ways and our trying to put people into orthodoxy boxes is just one way of, you know, stopping that process and saying, okay, you need to be all the way here or you're not in. Um, You need to accept these things or you're not in. And we sort of need to accept the fact that um, uh, (laughs) things are a lot more complicated than that. And uh, the lines are fuzzy and, that's that's yeah. okay as a weird person to be defending um lines and boxes i think <laughs> one one purpose of them though is that um i mean religious communities help foster trust and help facilitate interaction because there's a shared bundle of of rules and and performances and and all those sorts of things and if you share that with a bunch of people, then you can assume that they share it and you can act accordingly, right? So it enables the community to have higher levels of trust and cooperation than, than it could without them. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of need quick and dirty ways to know, wait a minute, am I acting like you, like you're an outsider? Am I acting with you like you're an insider? And, and those sort of confessional boxes can serve that purpose to a degree, and, and that does accomplish something. I think I would I would push back on that though cuz I would say that those confessional boxes don't they function completely different than the trust that you have in a family. I don't interact with my kids or my wife at all that way. And I would say that's the predominant metaphor of the New Testament besides the body, the family of God. And and I and I think I actually think parents that function with their kids that way around confessional structures, and if you're in and you're out, um, I actually think those are the families that are highly dysfunctional and end up getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's any different. Yeah. Um, I understand that it's a quick shorthand, but I guess I would propose that that's the whole problem with what I always try to talk about of the egoic intellect in the West. Um, sure. Can I jump in with a few things? Oh, yeah. Well, you were just saying um, you want to use the model of family instead of body, but this is something a friend of mine pointed out recently is the body is an organism, right? And, and various parts of the body are healthy, various parts of the body are unhealthy. And so uh, just this metaphor of a body is, is just a way of thinking of this church as this living, organic, developing um, thing. And it's not something that can be just sort of um, put in a box. It's it's filled with people, right? Um, and with 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 regards to what Sam just said, um, 
I think uh, I would sort of defend my approach by saying you sort of have to have two stances. You have, I, I think I see a value in, you know, the church community, which does have its, its boundaries and does have, you know, this is what we believe and um, this is what we hold each other accountable to. But I think this, 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 this formational community then also has to have this attitude of um, being open to the spirit and not judging people from other, from other communities. So there's sort of this, um, this formation within this community, but then this being open to what's outside, which should ha- lead to this healthy dynamic of interaction with other communities while also um, sort of this openness to other communities while also reinforcing your own community and what you stand for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, okay, two things. First, are, are we going to talk about Joker or are we going <laughs> to talk about this? I want to talk about Joker. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. And then secondly, because we're still on this topic and we get going and I get a thousand thoughts. So, um, my problem, my problem with everything you, I mean, I agree with what you said in, in a certain frame, Julian, like I get it. But I think the problem is that's that's all still centered around ideas and concepts, which um, which will never really work. It's it's the problem with it's the problem with the unending schism. Like how Paul said in his recent video. I mean, he was man. I wanted to talk with him actively about it and riff <laughs> on it as he was talking about it because mm-hmm. because secularism is the product of the end of the Christian West and intersectionality and LGBTQ and fights between transgender people and radical feminists and the move, like my buddy Preston was just out here speaking and he said, there's a movement in Britain right now that's called get the L out because the trans people are sick of the lesbians because the lesbians are mad at the trans people because they see most trans people as 50 year old white men who are now coming in to adopt all this stuff the radical feminists have been fighting for for 20 years, and they see it as like an intrusion of the patriarchy. So like, but, but, that, but that, in, that nonstop kind of division and intersectionality that you get is the same thing that's happening in broader Protestantism, and it's all centered around being centered around ideas. Mm-hmm. Like that will be inevitable. If you if you adopt that paradigm, it will be inevitable. That's my whole point. I'm not saying you can't. I don't know. It's it's um. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Maybe this is a segue into Joker because you were talking about Matthew seven and 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 one of the big th- verses that I've been thinking about from the Joker is um. Oh, and I'm not gonna. I can't. Uh, what is it? Judgment. Um, uh, oh, I think I know it. Yeah. But it's from James. So mercy, mercy. Tri- it's essentially mercy triumphs over judgment. But the beginning of that is judgment is merciless. What is it? The nice thing about the internet. Okay, so James. It's James two, four, I think. Or, or James, James two thirteen. Where? Where's the actual verse? Oh, stupid browser. Um, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yeah. And to me, if I had to pick, if I had to pick like a, 
Umbrella verse for the Joker, that would probably be it. Mm-hmm. How so? Um, because I think Arthur Fleck is, in a lot of ways, um, simultaneously, and we've been talking about this, simultaneously exemplifying universal things, but in his particular experience. And I think one of the big things that he's portraying is um, a culture of a lot of people who live in disembodied realities and are pro- pro- projecting judgment as the world erodes while, while keeping themselves at a buffer from it. So it's just the world is full of judgment. I mean, even if you think about like his, it comes up, it pops up at numerous times throughout the film, but especially in like his last, uh, his on. last speech, he's, he's essentially saying, everyone's angry everyone's judgment no one has charity no one is trying to put themselves in anyone else's shoes what he's essentially saying is everything is judgment and that's all he's experienced his whole life is judgment yeah and and it's a it's a culture that's completely with a lack of love and and i think i think that judgment and law and and masculine spirituality and precision in language and defining terms and boundaries Here, all of that goes hand in hand i've i've been thinking of another duality just to add it to your list okay. the difference between christianity that's in power and tries to maintain its power versus a christianity that's not in power and is living outside of out of control so the the difference between christendom and the christianity of empire and Christianity that's that's not in control, which I think is is where Christianity in the West is headed, is in a sort of Christianity lived out of control, Christianity that's no longer connected to the empire. And mm-hmm. for me that sort of has as a really it's a really positive trend in my mind because I think so many of the problems we're facing today are in Christianity are because Christianity has aligned itself too strongly with the state and with the empire and with, and has tried to maintain its power. And we've sort of developed the theology of trying to maintain power. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? That's, an, that's my hot take of the day. Yeah. Well, this is kind of where Protestantism uh, shines a little bit, right? Because Christianity was first incubated as uh, a completely powerless religion, right? Exactly. Right. The whole New Testament was written when maybe there was like 10,000 Christians in the whole empire, and they were a tiny minority um, and never imagined being powerful. And then 300 years later, it was the power, and then it was powerful in certain areas for an extremely long time. And then Protestantism was kind of those two things starting to go in different paths for the first time in over a thousand years. And, but it was like, it's like Protestant Reformationism, Enlightenment, and like the separation of church and state, it was still all happening with Christianity, still kind of in charge, right? Like Christianity was trying to do the separation of itself from power, but that means it still had the power to do so. And there's just something a little bit paradoxical about that. And I don't think that we've ever really figured that out. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's this term by, um, 
Mennonite theologian, I really, um, John Howard Yoder, uh, Constantinianism, <laughs> which, which essentially he's, he's pointing to this, um, this shift that takes place when, you know, Constantine um, sort of takes over the church and the church becomes aligned with the state for the first time. And that's, you know, from a, from an Anabaptist perspective, that's sort of where, where all our problems come from. Um, yeah, um, Non-Trinitarians aren't particularly fond of Constantine either, for the record. Okay, we are, we are, <laughs> we're on the same side there. <laughs> yeah, I'll try yeah. I, I don't know what to think about him. So, I mean, I, I get that. There was a... Oh, you're an makes, Orthodox. You like um, hierarchies. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, by by association i suppose what i think about all these things see that's kind of the difference in my move toward orthodoxy is wow your lighting's much improved um but in my move toward orthodoxy is during my deconstruction phase which was never by the way a deconstruction of faith it was just a deconstruction of what do i believe and why um i i remember thinking like as I'm researching all this stuff and finding out things, cause like even on the discord, people were talking about, you know, Nestorian Christians and things like that. And I remember the first time reading about Nestorius and these controversies, controversies and all this history. And I'm like, I'm, what do I think about that? I have no idea what I think about that. You know, this is my first time reading it. And so, and I used to, I think that's the difference kind of in my broad shift between being Protestant and being, orthodox is i used to think i needed to figure out what i thought about all that stuff <laughs> and now i just i mean i think it's unrealistic really number one to try to have an educated opinion on all those things sure. um but yet i'm just not i'm not as worried about it but whatever that's an aside so when it comes to constantine i mean i'm I mean, I, there's lots of things I appreciate about the Anabaptist traditions. And I mean, and I'm, and probably the easiest way, even though there's a caveat with this, um, because we're talking about Joker is politically, I'd probably most define myself as like an anarchist. So, <laughs> um, but that's just essentially because, yeah, I think allegiance with the state is always dangerous for sure for Christianity. Um, well, well, um, to bring this back to the Joker, I think the there are some some pretty political subtexts running through this movie. Um, where the, I think fundamentally there's there's this tension between you know the clowns and you know what what people hear on the mainstream news, like the the tension between Arthur and Murray, essentially, where. I think a big a big subplot of the of the text is you know power right mm -hmm. who gets to decide what's right and wrong who gets to decide what's funny right yeah like power connected with taste right that's sort of like his point in that last speech is like humor is sort of a taste and he the Joker had long known that like oh man people don't think I'm funny like I think my jokes are hilarious that I'm <clears throat> scribbling in my notebook everyone else seems horrified and yet there's these famous comedians or the other people in the stand-up club that people think are funny and I like kind of think they're funny but sometimes not so you kind of knew that there was this difference in taste between uh, people's sense of humor 
And then like at the end, he connects that with morality, right? Doesn't he say something like yeah, I mean, your yeah, sense of morality and right and wrong is just the same as your sense of humor. Yeah. I and Julian, profound. yeah Julian I, and I were talking about this earlier. Yeah. Go Julian. I, I just think that's a profound yeah. connection he makes there because the whole idea yeah. of, of jokes is sort of running through the whole film, right? Um, his mother tells him, um, don't you have to be funny to be a joke, to, to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout the film, he's just trying to make these jokes and they're, they're, people find them off taste. Like people find them offensive. People don't get them. A lot of the time people are offended by his jokes. And for me, that sort of raises the question of what is, what is a joke? Who gets to decide whether a joke is funny? Um, what does it mean to laugh at a joke? What are we saying about about reality? Um, and, you know, when he gets to that final speech and he says, um, you know, it's actually just the, the powerful, the elite who sort of decide what's funny. And um, people like me who have a different sense of humor, um, we're sort of seen as the freaks and the outsiders. And what the Joker does in the movie is he sort of, flips the script and says, um, you know, I, I reject your, what do you think is funny? I reject what you think is right or wrong. I'm the normal one. I'm the one who, who's funny and you guys aren't. And so he sort of forces everyone to laugh at his jokes, right? He, he, in that way, because he, he, he sort of, when he, when he shoots Murray, he, it's that that's the ascendant of the clowns you know the people who thomas um what's the guy thomas wayne calls the clowns these people are now in control they're now on the top of the hierarchy so they are the ones who get to decide what's funny and so it's just what does it mean to to laugh at a joke what are we saying about reality when we laugh at a joke so i don't i don't i so I had a different, I mean, I would have had a different take. I mean, I don't see that last scene as, as commentary about power. Um, oh, it's all throughout, I think. Well, I mean, that's in it, but like, this is, this is like, this is where I would very much agree with Peugeot and like what I was telling you is I think the Joker is true art. Like it doesn't fit one simple narrative. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, and so I don't, what, what I think and I mean, obviously this is just my take on the art, but what I see out of that last scene is not so much that he's saying you're in power and you get to decide what's funny and I'm funny. I think what he's saying is not you're not funny and I'm funny. He's saying this whole thing is a facade and you're a liar. Yeah. I think that's what he's saying. Oh, that's part of it. That's part of it. Because like this is what I was saying to you just to complete my thoughts um, was – what it really reminds me of is um, uh, this, and I get this, I come back to it all the time, but I got this from John Piper's book, Think. Um, but he wrote in there, there's a section entitled the pra- Jesus and the Practical Relativists. And I think it's from, um, I think it's from Luke, Luke 22, maybe. But it's when it's when the scribes come up to Jesus and they question his authority and say, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus and Jesus says, let me ask you a question first. You know, the baptism of John was that from God or man? 
-hmm. and they go away and Luke gives you their inner dialogue. And he says, well, if we say, you know, if we say man, they'll stone us because they think John was a prophet. And if we say God, then he'll say, why don't you believe him? So they come back and they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you. And he says, you can interpret the sky and the signs and everything, but when it comes to me, you can't interpret it. And Piper, and I think this is really great exegesis, actually. He says, what Jesus is saying there is, you don't actually care about the truth if, if, if my authority is from God or not. That's just a game you're playing. You're, you're treating all this with the spirit of geometry, and I'm not playing your game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the Joker is doing at the end, because what the Joker, what Arthur Fleck does to Murray is he says, you know, the streets are filled with chaos and a lack of love and everyone's mean to each other. And you think that you're divorced from that, Murray, but you're not because you're an asshole. You brought me on here to make fun of me. And he, you think you can point to all the chaos out there and extricate yourself from it and think you're innocent while you scapegoat all the clowns in the chaos, but you're just as much of a part of it. And I'll point that out with the absurdity of my comedy because I'll say, knock, knock, you know, he crosses the street, he gets hit by a car and dies. Well, none of them think that's funny, but you know what they do think is funny? Making fun of a mentally challenged person as he struggles with his stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Why is that any less deranged than the joke he just told? That's what he's doing, which is the genius of what he's doing. He's saying, you're a liar and a hypocrite, and you're going to get what you deserve. Well, right. okay, okay. I feel, like, I feel like the movie starts where, um, you know, there's this external morality, this external sense of taste, and the Joker's trying to cooperate with it, right? Exactly. He's, not a, he's not initially rebelling against it. He, yeah, he, he has trouble fitting in. He has almost like moral dysphoria, you might say, right? He, he seems different than his circumstance, sure. but he's doing his, his best to shoehorn himself into his circumstance and get along. And like one by one, the things that motivate him to do that and tie him to do that fall away, right? Like um, his mom turns out to be just an adopted mom who let him get abused as a child. John Wayne isn't actually his dad. The talk show host actually just wants to make fun of him. He wants to stop taking his medicine, right? And that's like, I feel like a really important one, right? He's taking the medicine to try and change himself to be more agreeable with the circumstance. And then eventually he's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I actually like it better now that I'm not doing that. I actually like my sense of humor better than your sense of humor. And now I'm going to like my morality better than your morality and wash the heck out, right? I feel like that's sort of the sequence of the movie. I think what he also realizes is um, that essentially it's it's not just that he um, he realizes that that sort of everything in society and uh, maybe this is him deluding himself and just being a, too cynical, but he he gains the perspective that everything in society, everything in reality, every every person is sort of spirit sort of working against him, oppressing him and hating him and shoving him down. So he's, he's sort of, he's, the way I say it, he sort of finds himself in this reality where it's, 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 pretty, it's essentially him against the world because everything is pushing against him. You know, he discovers his mother 
has has abused him as a child, and she create his. She essentially is the reason he's the person he is today, who's in such a troubled state. He realizes, um, you know, everybody. And she was tricking him into taking care of her, uh, even though she. Oh, yeah, that's a key point. Time. That's a key point. But I'll get. To, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. He, he. So his mother is is the key thing. So it's sort of the mother sort of represents nurture, right? Um, that aspect has, has sort of completely conspired against him. And what he's been doing all along is sort of propping up the system, right? He's been supporting his mother. He's been trying to fit into society. He's been going to his job. He's been trying to fit in. And then when he, sm when he smothers his mother in a pillow, what he's also saying at the same time is, I'm giving up propping up society. I'm giving up um, supporting my mother. It's I'm, I'm done. Um, trying to go with the grain. I've realized everything is against me and now I'm just going to, it's, it's sort of, I'm going to take my last stand against reality. Right, it's, it doesn't it's, have it's, my best interest in heart. It, it has its own best interest in heart. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm just sacrificing myself for, for no gain for, or for no reason and even for, for lies. So I'm not. And so can and I, I, here's the, can I start just yeah, one yep, more thing? Yep, do it. He, he, he sort of creates this duality between, um, he, sa he says also this to Murray. He says, um, you thought we would be just little boys who take the spanking. And you didn't think we would just become werewolves and just fight back. And that's the duality, right? It's, am I the little boy who just takes beating after beating after beating after beating with, with his, I mean, what's striking about the movie is nobody loves the Joker, right? He's just getting pummeled, 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 pummeled. And so at some point, do I just take it or do I fight back? They're, they're, that, those are the two options he sees. So I don't know. I want to, I want to, I'm not even sure that I can articulate this, but I want to almost postulate that I think the Joker is even more subversive than that. I don't think, I don't think that it is a, it's a narrative about someone who is that conscious um, about all that kind of stuff. I don't, even subconsciously, I don't, I don't think it's about someone who's like, the world is against me now, I'm going to be against the world. People don't think I'm funny now, I'm going to be the most funny thing. I don't think it's about um, necessarily a mere a mere inversion of the hierarchies as another power play, because that's still playing the same game. It's still playing the same power game. And I don't think the Joker is doing that. I think what, I think what he's doing is saying this whole thing, this whole thing is false. I really see it as the, this whole thing is made up and is projections and is about, because th that's the mask thing. I think that's the symbolism of the mask is he's saying everyone is wearing masks and pretending like they're not wearing masks. It's the whole, like my whole life is a tragedy, but I've realized it's a comedy. I think, I think he's going deeper into absurdism. He's not. Oh yeah. He, the, I, I, mean, I don't, I don't even think that he's like in a way, in a way he's retaliating, but he's not retaliating in a, in a in Marxist like a, kind of way, right? No, it would be, in, right, it in would like a fighting back way. Evenly and like, 
oh, the tables are like this, well, I'm just going to make the tables like this. Yes, it, I don't it, think that's what he's doing. Yeah. But I think, I think the Joker doesn't escape the, the absurd reality he discovers when, when he tears off the mask. Right? For, I think what, what is, what, in my mind, what happens is everybody's mask has been, has been torn off, and we see that fundamentally underneath everyone is, is this horrible, like he says, everyone is awful. And that's the reality he sees, yeah. and he doesn't escape it. He just his solution is just to be, uh, just to play his own power game. Right. Well, and in that sense, I see him almost as like, as as a negative archetype, almost of what of what Christ will be. Because really, I mean, Revelation, the end of the Christian story, the telos of that is that everything will be laid bare the mountains will be down the sea will be no more everything will be uncovered nothing will be hidden yeah light will shine into every crook and cranny there there are no more masks the truth Mm -hmm. will be the truth and i think Mm -hmm. what the joker is is like you want to see what a world looks like where where everything is masked and everything is false and there is no love and we're all just pretending and we're all virtue signaling and we're all just we're all practical relativists. Like people, I think that's really what it is, is that he lives in a world where no one really believes all these things. And through the medium of the divination of fun and distraction and nonstop move news, because that's also interesting as you watch like the very first words in the movie, like when the W comes up on the screen is like, is a news commentator saying like all news all the time. Those, the that's news the, never those, ends. Yeah. The news never ends. Those are the first words in the film. That's yeah. significant. After he shoots Murray, what does it pan to? A bunch of TV screens in a store and then pans out and there's screens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like this is meaningless. No one cares about this. It's like what that made me think of was Paul. And Paul's brought this up recently with the Truman story. At the very end of the Truman story, right? Oh yeah. J- yeah. Jim Carrey is sitting there. Everyone's watching it with bated breath, you know, Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. He walks out, and the people in the booth, everyone who's been watching this and freaking out says, what else is on? <laughs> the, the problem is, is the Joker is saying, that whole world is false, and I want nothing to do with it, and I'm going to live as if my life is a comedy, not because I'm even trying to fight against it. It's just oh, yeah. the religious substrate is completely gone. I think that's what that is. His mom is gone. His meds are gone. There is no dad. Yeah, there is no society. The things that were holding him to reality, everything disappears. I have nothing left to lose is what it is. Right. Right. And that's sort of like the transition from Arthur Fleck to Joker, right? He stopped being his historical embedded narrative person and becomes larger than life, right? That's sort of like that resurrection scene, right, where the cop car crashes and then the, the rioters pull him out and then he's up on the hood of the cop car. And it's sort of like his resurrection scene where he's metamorphed from Arthur Fleck into the Joker and he's no longer a person in the narrative. He's a symbol. He's a larger than life, almost like he's divinized, but in sort of an anti-divinization or something like that. You know, yeah. what, what popped through my head, um, People are talking about that scene as sort of a coronation and look at all of these people admiring him. But what popped through my head was there's not a person in that crowd who admires him because they're all fundamentally 
self-interested and uninterested in any anything beyond themselves. But I don't even think that it's people. This so have you heard? Did you heard? Like when Jordan Peterson. This is another thing that I thought about this movie is Jordan Peterson. He contrasts like the hero, which is the one who takes on his burden and climbs up the hill and goes and seeks out treasure, fights the dragon, all that. But then he says the opposite of that is is the person who's just full of bitterness and resentment and hatefulness and self-loathing and hates humanity. I mean, that's even Dostoevsky's type stuff. When you hate humanity, when you hate human beings, when human beings are seen as the enemy and the blight on the earth, that's when you've fully gone the opposite way of the hero. And that's what I see all those, that's what I see Arthur as being and everyone that's around him. They're not people who, I, I don't think that it's, I don't even think they're playing an us versus them game anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's deeper than that. They've fully, they've fully descended into chaos and like as close as, see, because nihilism isn't That's like true. complete, isn't complete meaninglessness where like, where like something good is just as much as, something bad because otherwise they wouldn't be looting and destroying and setting fire to things. Those are all bad things. Nihilism isn't just like, I don't have meaning. Nihilism is like, I have lost all hope in any positive outcome. There is no meaning. Right. And I don't, it's, I don't care about anything anymore. And I want everything to burn. Mm-hmm. I want like or the I want difference everything. between Fine. like the difference between death metal and black metal. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and Joker is black metal, right? He has a motivation and it's evil, right? Uh, it's not like apathetic nihilism getting Jesus right. in the basement. It's he's, not apathy. He's yeah. going to entertain himself. He's going to make himself laugh because that's the only thing that gives him relief from his mental illness and whatever. And he has a very dark sense of humor. So he's, that, that's like the evil right? Like it is motivated, active, and aimed in a very dangerous direction. Yeah. And so this is, this is kind of one of the, why, so I would like to almost take a practical turn on it because I think all this is really good, but what, one of the reasons I love the Joker so much is I see it as, I see it as a warning for our culture really is what I see it as. And, and I think that, um, the Joker almost in a sense, and this is the weird, this is kind of the weird biblical, like I'm the Lord, your God, I create chaos. And like that weird Jeremiah passage where like the Hebrew word raw, which is chaos. And sometimes is translated sin, sometimes is translated all sorts of ways, but like it says, God creates that. And, uh, I believe, I don't know. It's a passage in Jeremiah and, uh, or you could almost think of it as the Taoist yin and the yang. I almost, I think, because in a way I see the Joker as, I would put it under the umbrella of Babel. I think when you, when society gets to a point, like I spoke with Julian on the phone about this, it's like someone asked Jordan Peterson once, like, do you think a society that, um, I don't know if they said like, which is not Christian, but that doesn't, do you think our society can survive without its Christian religious substrate, essentially? And I think Jordan Peterson responded to that and he said, for a while. And he said, it's like eating on the, the, 
leftover carcass of a dead whale, but he said eventually that carcass will be just bones. And to me, that's, that's what the Joker is when all that's left is the bones, when all the religious substrate is gone and the thing that's holding our society together that we've all either stopped practicing or, or chose or chosen to ignore, or we think is just silly, like Joe Rogan and Sam Harris. And like, just, we have this enlightenment humanism and reason that's going to hold us together. Uh, but the world is full of hypocrisy. Well, that, I think that just means that, the religious substructure is is waning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of kind of connected to what we were talking about with Constantine and stuff earlier, right? That was like the the first beginning of the whale or something like that. But, but yeah. yeah, I have a bit of yeah. I don't I don't quite like that take because <laughs> <laughs> because I, I just see the whole um, Christendom thing as problematic to begin with. Um, so then that gets the question, Julian, then how do we, how do we maintain Christian religious substructures without it falling into coercive institutionalism, uh, and, and, and theocratic, right. theocratic totalitarianism or, right. or Iran or something like that. Yeah, sure. I, I, I guess I, I sort of, um, envision a sort of pluralism, um, as an alternative where you have sort of many different ways of seeing the world sort of competing um, for, for being the most um, attractive vision of what it means to be human. Sure. Um, but, but there still needs to be some structure above that or rules of the road or else it's. The, yeah. What's the, the substrate? Yeah. Like <laughs> Amer- it- America was an attempt to do something quite like that. We'll and this let is what they, I would, we'll yeah. let the Anabaptists come, we'll let the Quakers come, yep. we'll let the Unitarians and the everyone else, and they can <laughs> have their communities and we'll have freedom of religion, but we'll still have some law and we'll have democracy. And so right. far it's it's kind of working, but it, it's starting to seem to, to run well, out of Right. And they like, said it will be based on it will be based on ideas and rules and abstractions. But I think but again, I think that's waning. I don't think that has I don't think that can last. It just seems like so many people sort of believe in the larger structure or sort of this vague um, um, American Christianity empire thing instead of authentic Christianity. Where, of course, that whole that whole sort of um, cultural Christianity is waning, but it it seemed like a lot of people sort of that was what they thought Christianity was. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is, this is, an, uh, is Joker yeah, talking about the end of Christendom? Um, well, I don't think it is explicitly, but it is in a universal way, which is what makes it good. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, I don't think the, the, the good thing about the Joker is it was political, but it wasn't partisan. Right. And it's almost impossible to not be partisan in our day and age, like everything immediately, was that helpful for Trump or hurtful to Trump? Like we need to immediately put it in that category. And the Joker wasn't doing any of those things as far as I can tell. But well, it was part of the why, why people it didn't still like managed it. to speak to almost every contemporary issue, right? There was there was yeah. the media crisis, there was Trump, yeah. there was the deplorables, there was um, 
you know, disinfected young men. There was, yeah. but that's because it's, but that's around. because it's symbolic and it's religious. Like that's what Jordan Peterson says, like underneath the politics and the ideologies, religion. Yeah. Yeah. And art. Like, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was right. all there. It was some, and, and, um, you know, Jonathan Peugeot really brought this out in his review. Um, it just managed to interact with these um, sort of competing narratives in a way that sort of tipped them all on their head and sort of undermined them all. Like, you know, the yep. Joker is sort of this, this violent incel who starts an Occupy Wall Street movement against the rich. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> who, who starts out by giving his mom sponge baths. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I started when I, when I finished the movie, like one of my, one of my first thoughts was, you know, I should, I should, I should start being more nice, being nicer to incels. <laughs> that's something that popped through my head. Right. And that's part of the, that Christian substrate of our culture is to be nice to the marginalized, to care about the widows and the orphans and that sort of thing. And if the, the genuineness of the faith that can get people motivated to do such a thing starts to wane, then you turn into fam- well, families like the Waynes who um, have stopped kind of doing that duty. I did not mean to be that, that um, cool with language. But, and when that, when, when, that, when that starts to happen, then, then you either need to have extreme power to keep down the discontent, like the pre-Christian Roman Empire, or things fall apart. But, what's, but what is like, and so I don't know if this connects to that, but um, Julian, I, one thing that I realized too in my uh, second, or I think I realized it in my second watch of the Joker uh, was, um, is, and Julian brought up at a good point in this too, is that order, when the religious substrate disappears, when you're just left with bones, when chaos is ensuing, there's a certain point where I don't think you can turn the tide anymore. You, there's no longer an appeal to order. And I think that was really exemplified when the police are chasing Arthur when he's on his way to Murray Franklin's show and they get in the, and they get in the train and they're trying to find him and going through there and things start to get crazy. And they start trying to say like, please, please, and pull out their badge. And then they pull out the guns and like those things don't work anymore. And, and like, and, and what Julian said is actually what they do is they just make it worse. They're just exacerbating the problem because the reality is, is that, the only reason the police work and can order society is because of these, these in, in Yoram Harzoni calls them these mutual loyalties, these things that are binding us together that are subconscious. All of our writers agree or all of our elephants agree that like, we're going to play this game. If all the elephants get to a point where they're stampeding and they're crazy, you have the madness of the crowd. Yeah. You don't, and you're guns not can't stopping fix that problem. They're not stopping hurting elephants or badges. They don't care, you know? Um, So I just, and that's ultimately, this is where, you know, you'll love Julian, the Anabaptist comes in is that this is why I think mercy triumphs over judgment is so important. And why I think the film is ultimately about, it's almost an apologetic for, for Christ-like love as opposed to judgment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it really is. That's, that's the thing that would have solved the Joker or and prevented his manifestation. This is why um, I don't think it's, it's, some people have called it a nihilistic film and it, 
just think that's sort of the wrong word because there's it just it just seems like the film is making a point it's making multiple points and it's 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 not reveling in in sort of the nihilism the the joker character is 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 ambiguous we sympathize with him but we sort of see that what he the path is going down is is not a healthy one that it's that it's a destructive one um so so can you call this film nihilistic what do you uh, yeah. or could you well, maybe if, call the joker nihilistic if your only source of of meaning is uh progressive identity politics uh then this just like knocks out leg after leg after leg on that stool and then i yeah. could see how you would think it was nihilistic but if you um if you don't rely on that for your sense of meaning then you see what it's trying to say oh yeah yeah it yeah. i mean it doesn't it doesn't fit into your box and i don't don't think it fits in any box like it's it doesn't one of the reasons I love it so much is that it's, it's just pregnant with meaning and interpretation. And, mm -hmm. and like, this is something that I've been um, realizing and saying to people is that's what makes classics classics. The reason mm -hmm. a classic, whether it's a book or a movie is a classic, is it, it's so brilliant and so poetic and so taps into like what Jordan Peterson says, the dream or the transcendent that it doesn't only have, saliency for this current culture at this time it's going to have ongoing saliency for a long time because because it's so pregnant with meaning and interpretation and value there's tons of things and those things aren't easy to give a cliff notes to or summarize it's like to use another thing jordan peterson talks about all the time like what is cain and abel about you know what is what's the flood about what is the gospel about you know like that's the kind of a lot <laughs> yeah it's about a lot of things it depends on which angle you want to come to it at you know like what's the atonement about well we know that it's penal substitutionary atonement at the end um just kidding <laughs> heretic I, I think i think another thing that's interesting is like a lot of a lot of art forms do this where they start out as lowbrow right and um the high artists sort of ignore it and look down on it and i'm thinking mm. of like common comic book movies right mm. like oh those are just for kids and you know you know prepubescent boys and yeah they make funny but they're not high art right and they can't be high art and i think martin scorsese said something like that very recently and got in trouble yep. or well it got you know got a lot of attention for saying it but he i called them movie movie park or theme park movies theme park yeah. movies um, uh, and not not oh, cinema yeah right right yeah. but then but then someone's like well you know there's actually a lot of potential in this genre and i'm actually going to go into this genre and show everything that's in there and it was sort right. of one of those moments where the comic book movie became something bigger than it had been well okay, that's what burn I... power said did you watch burns thing Julian? yeah i did i did so that's essentially what burn says is he used and i thought this was a brilliant analogy because he brought up is the he the georgian guy yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah okay so he brought up he brought up the um 
the Scorsese point of just, you know, that these are the divination of fun. Like we go there to just be distracted, forget about our lives, not zone out, you know, just like, it's essentially like, you know, take a drug hit. Let's do it. Let's do a heroin trip out and just relax and escape reality for a while. But he said, so that's what Scorsese was trying to say. Scorsese, I don't think would ever say that about Joker. And because Byrne well, okay. used this illustration, he said, which I just want to say this first, Julian, okay. he said, um, he said someone, because Byrne was critiquing Marvel movies or movies or agreeing with Scorsese. And he said, you know, you can't tell me that these aren't good movies. You know, I felt something. And Byrne said, well, yeah, when you go to McDonald's, you <laughs> taste something too. But he said, it doesn't mean there's nutrition. Yeah. Right. You know? And that's the, I think that's the truth is that's the difference between just, you know, base entertainment and, and a movie that is entertaining, but artful because like, and these, this is why I'm weird. These are the movies I love. The last movie I saw three times in theater was Silence, which was a Scorsese movie, actually. Hmm. Also not fun. Nothing about it fun. Of course, Joker isn't a fun movie either. I mean, I, I know. No. I, I, um, I didn't enjoy watching the film. Like, I, I was just on edge and disturbed all throughout. But it was yeah. really fun to think about it afterwards. But I yeah. didn't enjoy watching it. But right. on the Marvel Comics point, um, I th- I, so I haven't, I haven't seen hardly any of the Marvel movies. I watched the Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man thing recently. Uh, I thought that was... Did you watch the ones with your twin, Andrew Garfield? No, not yet. <laughs> but, but the Spider-Man one, I, I thought actually um, that, that had some interesting um, themes, you know, the whole fake news stuff. Um, so I don't know how, how accurate this sort of snobbery against the Marvel <laughs> movie is. But, but I think with this film in particular, it's, it isn't a Marvel movie at all because what... I realized coming in, I actually had an advantage over the people who sort of know all of the, um, the previous iterations of the Joker because they were sort of trying to fit him into the universe. And, and what the director is doing is he's saying, this guy isn't necessarily even the future Joker. You know, I'm just taking this sort of this category of Joker and then just riffing on it and creating something new. And if you don't come burdened with all of these expectations of, oh, he has to take on... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Batman or whatever. Right. You're not going to, I, and oh, well, Batman is kind of there, right? Yeah, and, he's a, and, yeah. and he left a breadcrumb where he could totally pick yeah. it up and make the Batman side of the movie later. For sure, for sure. But I guess I just, um, I just found the takes from the from the Marvel um, buff people a bit annoying because they were. Um, a, a nerd will point out that Batman is DC Comics, not Marvel. <laughs> that, that's what I was thinking. I was like, <laughs> Julian, you're right. They're not Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> but I just found the geeks um, kind of annoying because they were saying, oh, I didn't want to know the origin story of the Joker. And this just disappoints all of my expectations. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, it's obvious. that I think it's pretty obvious that the director, and he actually said this in the interviews, he wasn't trying to say anything about, you know, the Joker and um, and Batman. This is something that stands alone and should be sort of watched that way. Yeah, but yet it was still in the genre, right? Oh, sure. Like, but it wasn't like a fanboy movie 
where it takes the canon of the comic books that are very strict in what needs to happen and just, yeah. you know, pushes all of their buttons in a way that, that they're okay with sort of uh, in a doctrinaire kind of way. But he's like, okay, I, I'm going to do this thing. Kind of like how, I, like how jazz music started out as music for New Orleans brothels. And now it's like the snootiest genre that there is, right? And, uh, you know, it's like that, that kind of progression of, of, a, of a genre of art. So I think it'll Bern, be interesting. Bern had also this amazing point where he said, uh, w- what I love about the Joker is just the fact that it takes these fans, um, these fans' expectations, you know, oh, a movie yeah. about the Joker. I know the Joker. I've seen the comic books. I know the, I know the universe. And so it sort of brings the fans in to watch the movie, but then it completely destroys their whole expectation. Yeah. They, uh, they go in there for mindless entertainment and they come out just like, <laughs> who am I and what is my life? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yet yeah. it's like the best selling movie of the year. And if anything, we'll, we'll get the, the, mo- uh, the movie industry moving in that direction in the future. It'll be like, oh, well, that was the only movie that made so, money this year. Right. So here's a question I have for you guys. Okay. I would love I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I just I haven't thought of this before. Just brush your teeth. Okay. I'm gonna have to go on a little my my uh, youngest keeps prodding me. Um but so right, it made all this movie or made all this money. It made all this movie. It made all this money. So you could there's a couple ways that you could take that. You could say like um is that because well i would just okay why why is it making that much money it's definitely not because people enjoy watching it i mean i i don't i don't know if there's a person alive who sort of sits through the joker and is just mindlessly entertained and just on the edge of his seat and loving every second do you think do you think it's possible to to sorry to interrupt but because i was just asking this myself and i want to see what you said do you think it's possible that people are watching it um mindlessly like like a saw movie are people watching it kind of like this is just gratuitous um horror yeah yeah i mean it's not really like there's a few uh, does the average joe uh, who watch movies mindlessly actually exist (laughs) maybe another question (laughs) right right i I mean i'm just wondering what that signifies that it's been so successful because we're americans and it's made money so it's successful right like in the early days of the intellectual dark web they were like so wait a minute, the actual way to get 20-something-year-old guys' attention is to put out three or yeah. four-hour dialogues about science and philosophy and religion. Like, right. no one thought that that was the case. And right. it was sort of that maybe your audience is smarter than you've been giving them credit for. And I think okay. that the Joker is like, okay, you've been making comic book movies and they've been doing pretty well. But maybe your audience is even smarter than the quality of comic book movie that you've been making. Well, that's hopeful. I mean, if that's the case, if it's truly the case that people are going to see Joker because of its substance, I take that as a hopeful sign. Yeah. I mean, I haven't talked to a bunch of other people who have seen it. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are the people who just think it's a horror thriller thing. But I, just, I don't see how you could enjoy it that way. I agree with you, Julian, that like, 
I was kind of like waiting for it to end while I was there, <laughs> but I, I still thought it was really good. Do you like horror movies in general? Oh, I hate horror movies. Hate oh, horror yeah, movies. maybe that's part of the problem. I just uh, <laughs> I just get disturbed. I mean, I remember watching The Conjuring, and <laughs> like it was, it was during the night, and I could barely walk home. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, easily unsettled. But the movie does have just this, you know, the throbbing music throughout. It's just this constantly on edge. You're constant. And then these scenes throughout where it sort of juxtaposes this pathetic, pitiful event that's just happened with this macabre sense of humor. You know, I, the best example for this is, is the midget, the, you know, the midget who, who's trapped in the room and he can't reach the, he can't reach the latch and then he has to ask um, the Joker to, to let him out. And like, there's at some level that's funny, but another level that's, that's, you know, that's pitiful and disturbing. So like, that's sort of the whole movie is filled with these scenes, which in my mind sort of map onto the the sense of humor of the Joker. So, in in the same way, we can't laugh at those scenes. We the people in the movie can't laugh at the Joker's jokes. And my question for you guys is, what does that say about these jokes? Like, why can't we laugh at them? Why isn't it funny that the midget can't reach the can't reach the lock? Or is it just because we're politically correct? I don't Well so. Well I kinda of felt bad if I'm honest. Well not felt bad, but I was just like uh when I read your uh your blog earlier today, I was like, uh I laughed. <laughs> so yeah. Um it's not because it's so it, it's such a, I think it's just a comedic relief valve in that tension because it's just so, the humor that's used, it's very, it's very black humor in the movie because it's just, because it's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. Like that, that situation is, is, it's absurdly funny because mm-hmm. it's just insane that that would happen. Of course that right. would happen. Of course it's a midget with the lock done up here and he can't get away but what's crazy is like and this is why but that's not funny what makes it funny <laughs> what is what is funny because I mean, it's so right well what is funny is a hard right, question when, when, the, when, the, yeah. when the joker tells his joke on live television and they say that's not funny you can't joke about that what are they actually saying well and so so let me take this um let me just use a different illustration to um to maybe get at what you're asking and so i don't know if any of you guys will know some of these comedians and things but like my wife and i occasionally will watch stand-up comedy or something like that at night just uh as a break or whatever but there's a so do either of you know the comedian anthony jeselnik you're familiar with that guy all right well so this won't really make sense to you then (laughs) uh but he has a he has a special on Netflix. His one of his older specials that's called Thoughts and Prayers, which, um, Dark. well, and this this will who knows this probably people think poorly of me because of it. <laughs> but I actually think <laughs> there are parts of that special that I find very funny. Why did um, you admit it? You find the whole thing funny. Why did you just admit? You well, I mean, I do find I, like I would say that I do like that comedy special. I think it's funny, but like he jokes about things that are not okay to joke about. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it's things that because of, uh, present company, like I'm not even going to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> not you guys, but, um, and, uh, and it's, and my wife and I have conversations about that because there are certain things and I don't know what this means. I mean, whatever, psychoanalyze me. I, I don't know what it means between the difference between me or my wife that, because sometimes I'll find them funny and then I reiterate them to her. And maybe it's just that I'm not as good a comedian as Anthony Jeselnik, but which I'm sure is true. But she's just like, that's not funny. <laughs> like, she's like, I don't find that funny. <laughs> um, and, and in a sense, I actually talked to my, so I take guitar lessons and I talk to him about these things because he likes the same, he likes Anthony Jeselnik too. And it's, they are, so they are sub, so they are subjects. So I'll put it this way. There's certain subjects that he does comedy on. And the reason it works is because he baits and switches you. Like he'll be going down a certain line and then all of a sudden he just twists it in a way that you don't see it coming, but it's an off color subject. Right. And, um, and so these are subjects that I don't find funny at all. In fact, in real life, like I'm very passionate about them. And like, I've even considered going down certain career paths to work in opposition to things, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yet, like Dave Chappelle's thing, like his joke about abortion kind of. Sure. Yeah. I mean, right? it, it's, they're like that or Louis CK and like before his big falling out had a, had a similar abortion joke about like you know they're not like they're not babies but they're kind of babies you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um and so but but a good comedian will do that and and they'll throw wrenches into all kinds of people that are coming at it ideologically but it makes people from both perspectives if done well think now i don't know how that's necessarily connected to like the scene with the black comedy um, well, I could come up with a few other examples, right? Okay. Um, maybe another example is him chasing the guys who stole his signs with these giant rubber shoes. No, giant <laughs> shoes, and that's just so ridiculous. Or when right. he's sitting in the train station with his clown suit, and he looks all dejected and sad, and there's just the absurdity of him sitting in this train station with a clown suit pretending to be a normal person and just having these human emotions in the clown suit. So that's not a great example. Um, Well, there's weird ones. Like even the guy, so before, before he kills him, the guy that comes to visit the big guy, whatever his name is. And like, and he's talking about the police coming there to question them. And then the little person says, um, you know, like, well, he didn't question me. And the guy says, well, that's because you're a midget you're not a regular sized person. They're not looking for a midget. So like that yeah. was, like that uh, was funny. Well, I guess that's, that's um, somehow not exactly the same thing. No, it's not the same. I don't know why it's, it, maybe it's just because he's just making a joke and you can either find it funny or not, but it's just these, the, what, I, what I'm thinking about is just okay. scenes in the movie where something absurd happens, which is, which is, sad on one level but but funny on another like um, the exit door for the the emergency yeah department. yeah that's another one it's another one yeah he just walks into the exit or or the extended kiss he gives yeah. to the lady right you know that's right is he sexually harassing this woman or is he just socially awkward this is really weird really awkward kind of funny kind of weird 
another one. Um, yeah, there's there's all kind. It's just something the movie does. As well. There's another one where he's being beat up by the bullies, and then he's lying there next to a sign. Then he reaches towards the sign, which is in broken pieces, and then he reaches under his shirt and then presses a button, and then water comes out of the flower. <laughs> and yeah. <it's> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's well, a bringing a gun into a children's hospital. Right? Yeah, another one. Right? Yeah. Like that's not, that's like kind of funny, but it's also not supposed to be funny, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, that was good. That was good." So, um, I probably need to go, but one thing I w- I wanted to say this though, uh, upon, and I mean this isn't related to the broader abstract things, but but uh, upon watching it numerous times. And I've been, and I'm a, and I am a big Joaquin Phoenix fan. I mean, I think he's brilliant, especially if you start going back through his catalog and looking at his movies and things that he's done. Like, go watch, just YouTube him, like, singing a song from Walk the Line. Mm-hmm. Like, he just, number one, he didn't know how to play guitar before Walk the Line. He learned to play guitar, and like, you almost can't even tell it's not Johnny Cash singing. Right. It's unbelievable. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um. So he's a brilliant actor, and the more, even in The Joker, the more you watch it, like even his, I mean, he's in every scene, but if you really play careful attention to the nuances of the choices he's making and his acting and what he's doing and the progression, because even like, oh man, I mean, there's just scenes that blow you away, like even when he's, because this is the thing about the comedy is he doesn't, like one of the scenes that I think is really poignant is even when he's when he's watching the other comedian and he's jotting down notes. Like, oh yeah. yeah. Slick back your hair. <laughs> like say, say sexual things. Always funny. <laughs> like he doesn't. He doesn't get it. Right. You know, like yeah. he doesn't understand really what makes things funny. He doesn't. He doesn't get it. In the and normal so, like, taste. Yeah. Right. But even in like even in his taste, I don't know that he. Because does he ever, this is a question, in the movie, does he ever, I mean, he's got his really weird psychologically disordered laugh or misordered laugh, but does he ever have a genuine laugh? Which then that becomes manifested as like, it's his absurd laugh when he manifests Joker at the end. But does he ever laugh in a genuine way? Because like even when when the little person can't reach the thing, like he doesn't laugh. No. He just says, like, oh, does, sorry, buddy. Does he laugh at his own jokes, like, when he's reading out of his notebook? I don't, I don't even remember. I mean, there are times I think he smiles and laughs, like, even when he's writing, like, I hope that my death makes as many sense as my life. Like, he's kind of smiling and laughing, but I, but even that, like, it's not because it's funny. That, like, that's his neuroses, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard the director say there's only one time in the movie – where he actually laughs in a genuine way. And I forgot when, when that is. <laughs> well, now I'll have to watch it all over again. <laughs> it might be when he's sitting in front of the psychologist at the end. It might be that scene. Oh, that might be true. When he's sitting there laughing and it's like, oh, it's just a joke. You wouldn't get a, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You wouldn't oh, that, yeah. It gets us into some alternative endings territory if you guys want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I probably need to go pretty soon. Yeah, we could do it we could do it really briefly because we said I mean the most Let's the not big, 
Well, the biggest theory I've heard is like the whole thing's in his imagination. I hate that theory. Um, yeah, yeah. And Which, the movie messes with you with that, right? But Yeah, it does. Yeah. But you often kind of know what's what seems real and what isn't. Yeah, well, because there's clearly parts within it. Because what, what, what would be confusing to me about that interpretation is, well, there's clearly parts within it, though, that he's just imagining that are false, that the movie tells you. Because, I mean, it has sequences where it shows you that he's imagining these things that aren't real. Right. Like the right. whole the whole girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the, the Murray imagination. The girlfriend one is more... Um, is I'll more be, veiled like the being on the talk show right away is pretty clearly he's imagining yeah. it because it pans back to him in the bedroom but or in the living room mm-hmm. but like what like i don't understand how that would make sense from like a direct from like a storyteller director viewpoint if the whole thing's fake is it like a is it an inception like an imagination and imagination well he's uh, imagination the theory goes he's telling the psychologist at the end his life story and why he's there and it's all essentially an elaborate plot to kill her because he already walks away with the bloody footsteps and um the theory sort of goes that he's not making everything up like some parts of it are true but a lot of it is just him living in his own reality so yeah what what um what's one scene that that struck you guys or that you find the most interesting or what's your favorite scene in the movie the most the most poignant scene for me the most heartbreaking scene is the bus scene with the little kid and the mother like that's the scene that just breaks my heart because to me Um, that's that's the scene where he is most to me, that's the scene where there's the most hope for connection and love because, I mean, because little kids manifest that, you know, like if you want to be in the kingdom of God, become like little children. I mean, that's what that's why everybody loves little kids and babies. And um, and so he's trying to connect this little kid and playing with him. And it's, you know, he's getting genuine human love and affection and he just gets jumped all over. And I'm and immediately at that point, I was just like, oh, God, no. Let me let me top oh, you. <laughs> so terrible! No, <laughs> don't worse. don't crush him right there, please. Here's a worse one. My, I think I think the most crushing scene for me is when he's he just discovered his mother adopted him and abused him. Then he he's standing out in the rain, and then he comes into his girlfriend's apartment, mm. completely soaked, and he's obviously dejected. He's hoping to get just a little bit of encouragement or love from another human being. And then she suddenly shows up. And then as soon as you see her face, you realize there's something wrong. She's either broken up with him or she's, he's just invented her. And then you realize he just made up this whole girlfriend thing yeah. from the start. And then you realize there's never been a person in his whole life who's actually loved him. And that is just yeah. that is the most crushing scene in the entire movie for me. And then the other scene that's very parallel to that is when he sneaks into the opera and he's uh, next to uh, Wayne at the urinal, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 he finally kind comes to believe that oh oh I actually am not his son. He he's telling he's probably telling the truth, and yeah. like just that disconnection, like 
Because, like, there was part of me, I was like, oh, man, that would be a really cool storyline if Batman and the Joker were, like, half-brothers or something like that. Yeah, Mormons would love it. about that, right? (laughs) But also, like, the, you know, the Jordan Peterson, the the feuding brothers, right? That's that's an archetype, and that would have been super cool. But even that, like, gets pulled out and sort of just the lack of connection to any father figure whatsoever. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's part of his whole, I mean, I see that. I see his, that's one thing that I noticed throughout the movie is he's, he uses, so he has no human love and affection really outside of his mom. And so he uses imagination a lot as, as a medication for his lack of human connection. Mm -hmm. But then I think, I think why the girlfriend scene is so significant is like, that's the last, like that's when his imagination stops working. Like he no longer can do that to medicate his his hopelessness and his despair, and and I think I mean my take on it is that he ends up killing her, and I think that's almost like a it's like a symbolic act of severing that last even medicated connection to love, mm-hmm. which is super sad too, <laughs> you know, like the whole thing. All right, on that note, good night. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, great talking with you guys. So, yeah, I really wanted to process this movie more. Um, so uh, it was fun talking with you. I hope yeah. that helped. Yeah. Well, I could talk. Yeah, it's a great movie. Everyone should watch it. Lots. No, and not everyone should watch it. Well, don't give not. this movie to your kids. No, that's true. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, so the quick, quick last thing. I was, I love, love this movie so much, and I'm talking about it so much, and thinking about it so much that my kids, like, then they hear about it and think about it, and so then I just started telling them a little bit about it, like a while ago, a few weeks ago, and I just recount to them like the bus scene or just a few different things, like some of the things that aren't, you know, so terrible, yeah. like even that, and like both, two of my kids just like start crying <laughs> just for me like recounting the thing to him and i'm just like oh man yeah well sorry <laughs> but yeah it is sad i mean it's not even that the movie is that that graphic though the the scene with the midget um yeah. the little person is pretty graphic yeah but the whole thing is just so psychologically disturbing mm-hmm. it's troubling yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. just a disturbing movie <laughs> all right all right. It was okay. a joy, guys. Adios. Do you want me to send this to your, uh, uh, or should I just pass it on to Jeff? Yeah, just post it. I'm cool. Yeah, throw it out there. Like Julian okay. said, we're super famous. Just <laughs> throw it out there. Yes. Good night, my friends. <laughs> See you guys. Right. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.